If you have your Bibles, please open to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 23. If you want a title for today's message, it would be this. The Fulfillment of Prophecy and the Survival of the Savior. The Fulfillment of Prophecy and the Survival of the Savior. Um, I come to the end of a section in Matthew's Gospel, uh, the birth narrative of Jesus, the early years Uh, If you want more information on this time, you can go to the Gospel of Luke. He provides uh, details that Matthew doesn't, um, provides a good bit more detail. Um, But this is is where it ends for Matthew. He he started uh, with the genealogy of Jesus, um, moved into the birth of Jesus, um, and now we're going to get to the end of that story uh, in terms of what Matthew wants to relate for us. But I think it'll be clear as we go through this why I say that this passage is about the fulfillment of prophecy and the survival of the Savior. So let's just kind of review where we've been. I'm standing on the shoulders of uh, Scott, Mark, and Jerry. It's kind of funny. I don't know if you mentioned this um, last week, but it's one of those weird providences of God that in December, each one of the elders is going to be preaching uh, on a different Sunday in the same flow. So Scott got Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Mark got uh, 1, 18 through 25. Jerry got 2, 1 through 12, and I get the last one. We don't know the next time that's actually going to happen here at North Avenue. That wasn't planned. We just thought it was pretty cool um, that each one of us got to share from this section in the Gospel of Matthew. But I'm standing on what you guys have already shared, and so I'm uh, very appreciative of how you have walked us through uh, these passages. So I'm just going to draw some some highlights out from what we've already seen to kind of get us set up and in the right mindset for where we're going to be in Matthew 2 today. So we see first in verses 1 through 17, uh, the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's three names really, uh, there's many names in this genealogy that are important as Scott showed us. But in terms of kind of key markers or key, key anchor points, um, obviously there's Jesus, but Jesus isn't just some nebulous out there individual. He is clearly, as Matthew says in Matthew 1.1, Jesus is first the son of David and he is the son of Abraham. And those two names matter significantly for us because these are two individuals uh, who are massive in the shaping of the Old Testament story and of our hope of salvation. Uh, Abraham uh, was the, the first here that we need to consider from the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham was a man who was a pagan idolater that God called to, uh, to follow him and to walk with him. And when he called him, he gave him promises that he was going to have many offspring come from him. He was going to give him a land and, and a people. He was going to bless Abraham and that Through Abraham, the nations of the world, the families of the earth would be blessed. And that matters. Why? Because because of sin, the families of the earth are alienated from God. All the peoples um, of the world are separated from God due to their sin. 
And so up to that point, that God has made a promise in Genesis 3 that someone's going to come, uh, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. But we're still waiting for more specificity. We want to know, what's this going to look like? How is this salvation, this deliverance going to come? And then in His promise <coughs> to Abraham, God says, it's through you, Abraham, that the nations are going to receive my blessing again. And so that is actually a big deal. We, we, we read that story in Genesis 12 often, and I think we can rush past the significance of that. God has said it is through this one man and his family that you who are separated from me outside of my blessing are now going to receive my blessing through him. So God just narrowed his work, made it much more specific through Abraham. And so this blessing of God that we all need, we know where it's coming now. And that's the significance of Abraham. There's a lot more we could say, uh, but at least that. But secondly, in the genealogy, Jesus is also called the son of David. And now this is huge because we know through God's promises to David that God was going to raise up a son from David's line, <coughs> excuse me, from David's line who would rule not just Israel, but all the nations. He wasn't going to be just an Israelite king. He was going to be an international king. All peoples would serve this son of David one day. David understood that when he responded to God in prayer after God made this promise. And so not only are we looking for this blessing of Abraham to come, we're also looking for this true son of David who's going to come. And I think if we read the Bible rightly, we see that the blessing of Abraham, the favor of God, is going to come through this son of David. And so it's of, of no small significance that Matthew starts with David and Abraham and linking them to Jesus. He is the one through whom Abraham's blessing is going to come. So that means the nations can come back to God. And he is the true son of David, meaning he's the one who's going to sit on David's throne and rule over all. So that's the genealogy. We see in 1, 18 through 25, the fact that Jesus is the Savior. We're not going to read the whole thing, but you remember in verse 21, the angel talking to Joseph, he says this about Mary, that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Then read on, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this child to come, who we are right to see, is Jesus. He's the blessing of Abraham, the true son of David. He is going to be, in some amazing way, both God and man. God had dwelt with his people in a number of ways throughout history, but never like this. God appeared to Abraham and to the, the fathers uh, in various ways, but he dwelt with Israel in a tabernacle and later in a temple. But they could never get too close. Only one man once a year could go in to that special room in the back and get close to where God was. And whenever the presence of God manifested itself in the temple, the priests had to leave. Why? Because holy God and sinful man can't be close. But with this promise of God with us, we're going to have God dwelling with man in a way that humanity has not experienced before. 
in a much more profound, deeper way. God with us, Emmanuel, is Jesus. we got to understand it's bigger than what Adam and Eve had in Eden. It's bigger than the temple. John 1.14 says, The Word referring to Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled, literally pitched His tent among us. And John said that they beheld His glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the disciples of Jesus and the people who encountered Jesus were encountering the presence of God and the glory of God in a much greater way than even those people who saw the glory of God manifested in the tabernacle in the temple. And this is the Jesus we are talking about. Philippians 2, we've looked at that before. It says he, he humbled himself uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. How could he do that? Why? He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. God with us. God with us. This is who Matthew is revealing to us. But think about the other aspect. Not only is he God with us, think about his name. The name that he's given is the name of Jesus, verse 21. Now, if you've ever heard anything from the Bible, you know that the name Jesus is simply the Greek word for the Hebrew name Joshua. And we know the significance of Joshua in the Old Testament. He was the one who succeeded Moses, who led the children of Israel into the promised land. The name Joshua literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And so what God is doing through Jesus, he's taking that name and he's adding something significant to it. It's not just that Yahweh saves, that God saves in some whatever sense it may be. No, here it is he saves his people from their sins. So when you think the name Jesus, think Savior from sin. We have to make that connection because that's what Scripture drives us to. And you think about the significance of that. The greatest salvation we need is not earthly deliverance. It's not ultimately healing from physical ailments. It's not deliverance from earthly enemies and opponents. It is deliverance from our own sin and the penalty of our own sin. And so for God to give his Savior this name, Jesus, who will save us from our sins, is telling us something. He is here to bring about the greatest salvation imaginable. And implied in this, this name Jesus, who will save us from our sins, is priesthood. Another Old Testament theme that we don't have time to look at. It's implied sacrifice, sacrifice, death, the shedding of blood, substitution. Think again, the sacrifice was what? A substitute for a person. The sacrifice took the place of the Israelite. So whatever the Israelite deserved for his or her sin, the sacrifice bore that. And so when we say Jesus is the one who will save us from our sins, we are already saying he's the one who bears the penalty for our sin in himself. This Jesus who will save us is virgin conceived. He's virgin born. He has to be so he can be without sin. In chapter 2, verses 1, and tw 1 through 12, we see simply that he is the king of the Jews. This Christ, the Messiah, is the king of the Jews. And that matters for the story that Jerry walked us through last week because Herod, uh, the opponent of Christ, as we're going to see, as we saw last week and this week, he called himself the king of the Jews. 
And he didn't want competition. But Jesus is the true king. He was born in Bethlehem as prophesied. Exactly where? And the Magi, however many there were, um, however it was they learned about Jesus and his birth, they followed the star. And we see them as they come to worship this Jesus, that they are precursors to what? To all the nations returning to God through faith in Jesus. Because again, if he is the one who brings and mediates the blessing of Abraham so that the nations can come back to God, then it's very fitting that even at his birth, we see the nations coming to worship him. And that is exactly what the Magi, the wise men did. That's what we must do when we see Jesus as he is. And again, my prayer as we, as, as we go through this passage today is that our eyes would be open to see that Jesus is not just some historical figure that we make a big deal about, that he really is the Son of God. He really is the Savior of the world. He really is the only one who can bring us back to God. And if we see him like that, we cannot have any other response but worship. We will fall on our face before him. We will call out to him in, in, in praise and in adoration because we know he is worthy. And thankfully... King Herod, the pretender king of the Jews, is foiled in his attempt to use the wise men to get at Jesus because that's what he wants to do. He's tricking them, but God won't allow it. And so as we pick up in our passage here in verse 13, let's remember a few things before we read. As Jesus departs to Egypt, as Herod is seeking to kill him, we're going to see Matthew showing us not only the amazing story of how God protected Jesus, because it is an amazing story. Like you see the miraculous here and how God works in Joseph um, and then bringing them back. Like it is an amazing story of God protecting Joseph and Mary and Jesus. But there's something else going on here. These events didn't just happen. They were part of God's plan all along and they were prophesied in God's word. And that's what's so amazing about this. It's not just that they happened, but they were according to God's plan and according to what he wrote in his word. And even more than that, it's not the events themselves that should amaze us. It's what they reveal to us about Jesus that should grip our hearts. And so let's read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. I'll start in verse 12. The Magi, the wise men, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted 
because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your holy word, and it is about your perfect son. Help us in these few moments to truly understand what is here, to make appropriate application to our lives, that we might better know you, walk with you, and make you known. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, three truths about Jesus revealed in this text. And I'm going to mention them now, and then I'll mention them again as I go through them. Number one, we see that Jesus is the true Son of God, and therefore the true Israel. Jesus is the true Son of God, and therefore the true Israel. Number two, Jesus is the deliverer who brings God's people home. Jesus is the deliverer who brings God's people home. And number three, Jesus is the Messiah who will be rejected by his own people. Jesus is the Messiah who will be rejected by his own people. Let's look at the first in verses 13 through 15, where Jesus is the true Son of God and therefore also the true Israel. Let's kind of work through the story, get down to the part of prophecy to see why I entitle this the way I do. So again, uh, the Magi departed, and then an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him that he needs to get out of Israel. He needs to leave and go to Egypt and remain there until he's told differently because Herod is about to come after the baby Jesus to destroy him, to kill him. Now, what's interesting here is we have to understand a little bit about the culture of the time. You see, Egypt was a Roman province. It wasn't some faraway land with a different government. Um, the same Roman empire ruled over Egypt as it did in Israel. So Jesus at, and Joseph and Mary, as they move from, from um, Bethlehem and they go to Egypt, about a 75, 80 mile journey uh, to where they would have gone, they're, they're staying within the Roman empire under the same basic governing structure. Um, there was a Jewish population in Egypt of over a million people. So they would have found good friends. They would have found a community that they could get involved with. Um, it's likely some say, you know, they were there anywhere from a few weeks all the way up to over a year uh, because of when they left and when Herod actually died. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how long they were there, but they were in Egypt. Um, there was a community of Jewish people there they could have been a part of, uh, lived life with, been accepted by for that time. <clears throat> and you think about it, that's still a pretty big journey for a poor family like Joseph and Mary. They don't have a lot of money. You might say, so how could they get all the way to Egypt and survive for that long? We have to see God's providence at work here, God providing for his people. Because remember last week, what were the gifts that were brought to him by the wise men? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know that gold is very expensive. It is worth a lot. But so were the spices of frankincense and myrrh. God provided the financial means to 
for Joseph and Mary and Jesus to make it until they came back. They might have spent it all. I don't know. They, you know, 12 years later when they're at the temple, they, they can't even give the normal gift. They got to give the, the gift, um, you know, that's for the, for the poorest people. But at least for that time, God provided what they needed, which is really cool to think about. We, we sing the We Three Kings and we think about the gold and the frankincense and myrrh, but God had a very practical use for those things. He knew they were about to leave where they lived and go somewhere where they didn't live and they're going to have some way to support themselves. And that's exactly what he did. But there's also something here I want to draw our attention to. It's actually something that's not here that we are in danger of reading into the text in our current culture. Um, and maybe you've heard this, maybe, maybe you haven't, but it seems kind of popular amongst some to say that Jesus was a refugee um, and therefore we need to adopt a certain view of refugees and immigration because that's clearly what Jesus was here. And my, my goal is not to talk about proper policy, but to guard scripture from a misuse. Okay? Jesus was not a refugee. He was born under the authority of the Roman government, and he moved from one place under the Roman government to another place under the Roman government, okay? So he's not changing nations in that sense, like we think of refugees today, okay? And the other thing I think we need to remember, along the way, there would have been Roman forts or whatever. So Joseph and Mary, they would have followed a a certain path. They would have checked in, done various things as they moved. They were, it's like going from a different state to another state um, in that sense. It wasn't quite the way it's made out today. Um, So let's just be very careful about subjecting the Bible to current political issues um, and specifically current perspectives that might be popular in the culture. Let's test those things by what's actually taking place in the text. It's not the main point, but I think it is something we need to consider. So God supernaturally through an angel has Joseph get up in the middle of the night. I'm sure it was a terrifying journey and they go to Egypt and they live there until Herod dies. Now, What's interesting, again, look at the last part of verse 15. This whole event right here, Matthew says, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So everything that's happening was intended to happen so that prophecy could be fulfilled. That's an amazing thing to think about. What prophecy is he talking about? If you know your Old Testament at all, Try to find Hosea. All right, now this is going to be tough because we know Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you know, then we can mumble through the rest of them after that. Hosea, I think, is, see if I can prove myself right on this. Yeah. Hosea is right after Daniel. I got it. I was right. Um, The order of that. Some of y'all grew up in church and you could sing it in a song. I didn't get the song growing up. um, So I I still have to work at where these things are. I know they're there, uh, but I don't always get the order right. But Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. I'll give you a second to turn there. If you can find Daniel, just go to the next book over and you can find Hosea. And it's a little bit easier. A little bit easy to find that way. So Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. This is what... Matthew is quoting and saying what happened to Jesus and going to Egypt was fulfilling this. Okay. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called 
my son. And that's all that's quoted is Hosea 11, 1. And so what's going on here? Say prophecy, we usually think prophecy is predictive of the future. And this is a historical text. He's not talking about something that's going to happen in the future. He's talking about something that happened in the past. And his son is Israel. He's talking about the whole people as his son and referring back to the Exodus event. And so how can Matthew say that this historical passage in Jeremiah is referring forward to Jesus going to Egypt and then coming back to Israel from Egypt? Well, one of the things we need to understand when it comes to Bible interpretation, especially prophecy and and how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, how the Old Testament points us to Jesus, is not everything is necessarily predictive in terms of, okay, this is a future event that's going to happen. What we need to look for sometimes are what we call patterns, specific patterns of how God works in a specific person or in the nation of Israel, and those patterns repeat themselves, and the pattern itself is pointing to a greater fulfillment of that pattern in the future. Does it make sense? It's called typology, okay? You've got an Old Testament type, and then you've got a fulfillment in the New Testament, and that's what I think is happening here, because otherwise Matthew is just doing whatever he wants to with the Old Testament text of Hosea, And I don't think we want to reach the conclusion that said Matthew really didn't care about what Hosea was talking about. He's just grabbing a text that seemed to suit his purpose, and he's going to rip it out of context and use it to try to say this points to Jesus. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think when we read any type of fulfillment passage in the New Testament, whenever they say to fulfill this, the writers of the New Testament are accurately using the Old Testament text within its context, we just need to understand how that text is pointing to Jesus. Okay? And so here's what I mean. Think about this. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Going back to the Exodus. Okay, so God, there's a pattern here. God had a son. This son was Israel. This son was in Egypt. And God called his son out of Egypt. But why? Not just to deliver Israel and say, okay, you're delivered. Israel was to be what? A light and witness to the nations. The nations were to see Israel and its worship of God and say, wait a minute, that's what we need to be doing. They got it right. We got it wrong. Israel as a nation was a testimony to the world of a right relationship with God, of what it looked like to be under the authority of God and in covenant with God. And the world was to see them and say, that's what it looks like to know God. They were to be a light in that way. And so that's the purpose of a son of God in that sense is to what? Picture God in a right relationship with God to the world. Okay, so God brought Israel out of Egypt to be that special people to show the world who he is and what it's like to walk with him. And so drawing on that pattern, Matthew can look at that and say, okay, guess what? There's someone greater than Israel who's here. That's why I say he's the true son of God and the true Israel. Why? Because Israel failed. Israel engaged in hundreds of years of idol worship, worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech and all these false gods of the Canaanites constantly turning away from God. Yes, God was patient, but they ended up in exile. 
They ended up cast out of the land. They failed in the purpose to which God had even brought them into the land, which was, again, to be a light to the nations, to show the nations who God was and what it was like to walk with Him. And so now we have another son, the true son. And this son will not fail. This son will succeed. So it's, to, it's, it's, it's of no little significance that Jesus is called the light of the world. He's the one who what, shows who God is. Just as Israel as a nation was supposed to, Jesus does it perfectly and he never fails. And so Matthew can say that Jesus going to Egypt and then coming back is God calling his son out of Egypt. Why? Because this son will succeed where the previous son failed. And so we see that Jesus is the true Son of God and therefore the true Israel. Let's look at the next point, verses 16 through 18, where we see that Jesus is the deliverer who brings God's people home. He's the deliverer who brings God's people home. Look again. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Again, we'll, we'll end with seeing how this specifically is pointing to what, Jesus, what is happening to Jesus. But we need to see a connection here early on between... Uh, between Pharaoh killing Israelite children in Egypt and Herod's actions toward these children in Bethlehem and in the region surrounding. Because both are shocking stories if you think about it. And I think the parallel um, is not um, accidental. They're shocking stories. We think of what Pharaoh wanted the the Israelite parents to do or the midwives to do with the Israelite children who were born to cast them into the Nile. I mean, if we, we get out of, you know, the, 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 the nice American mindset that doesn't like to think harsh thoughts for a second, think about what that is. They're asking parents to throw their newborn children in a river to drown and die. It is gruesome and it is awful what Egypt wanted to do to the children of Israel. And then think of Herod without a thought ordering his soldiers to slaughter these children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding regions. What what is going on with that? We we need to make sense of this in a big picture sense. And I think, I think behind it all, what we see is the great adversary of God's people, the one the Bible calls the devil, whose name is Satan. And why, why would I draw this conclusion here as Herod seeking to kill Jesus in his rage just slaughters all the children in that region. Go back again to Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there, but think about God's promise that he made as he was condemning the serpent. He said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Satan knew that a male child was going to come who was going to defeat him. So Satan already had it out for humanity. That's why he went in the garden to tempt them in the first place. He hated mankind. Why? Because man was given glory uh, in, in God's eyes. Man was made in the image of God. And I think it's right to say Satan was jealous and Satan hated humanity. He wanted to ruin us. 
And then when God says a child, a human child is going to come, Satan, and he's going to crush your head. He's going to utterly defeat you and undo your vicious work. We can understand that Satan is hell-bound literally to destroy children. Why? Because they represent his own defeat. Go to, in your mind, to Revelation 12, the image of this great red dragon who's powerful enough to sweep down a third of the stars of the sky. And what is he doing? He is there. He's, he's at this, this woman who's about to give birth to the male child who will rule the nations. And he's there to devour that child. We can understand Satan's actions in history as a constant attempt to destroy the Savior, as a constant attempt to destroy this deliverer who's going to come and conquer him. And we see that evidence not only in, in Egypt with what Pharaoh did, but here with Herod as he is just without a second thought killing all these children because Satan behind that hates humanity. He hates children because children represent the fact that he's going to one day, one day be defeated. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that any policy in any society that seeks to target children for their death, for their enslavement, for whatever evil purposes is not just a, a mere human contraption. It is of the devil himself. We look at abortion in our land. Um, that more than anything in our day. It's not just sinful humanity. Yes, it is sinful. But you can see the echo of Satan and the shadow of Satan behind it because he hates people and he hates children. How many children were killed? See, this, this is where um, a lot of people, skeptics, want to challenge Christianity here and said, well, you know, if it was such a big deal, why don't we have other reports of it? Other, to, other than just what's here in the Bible. See, the thing of it is, though, this was nothing for Herod to do something like this. Herod was known to be a violent, vicious human being. And killing the children in a small village in the surrounding region, eh, that's not going to make a big deal. He's done a whole lot worse than that. That's slim pickings for a guy like Herod. Probably 30 to 40 total male kids under the age of two were killed. That doesn't mean it's any less grievous. Um, it's, it's not insignificant because each one of those is an image bearer of God. But in the grand scheme of things, society is not going to record that because that's nothing for Herod. But the grief of the families was real. The grief of the families in Bethlehem and the surrounding region are real. And interestingly enough, they fulfill what God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. Again, it, this is where we have to trust the wisdom and the providence of God in directing the affairs of human events. What Herod did was in some way a fulfillment of prophecy. Because what does he say? Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, here, as in Jeremiah, context is what matters. So I want you to hold your place. Turn to Jeremiah real quick. Jeremiah chapter 31. I want you to see this. Whenever we see in the, Old, in the New Testament an Old Testament quote, we are to assume that we are to include the surrounding context of that Old Testament quote. 
It's not just a verse, again, ripped out to mean whatever we want it to mean. We have to keep the context in mind. And that's what we all want us to see here in Jeremiah 31. I'm going to read, I'm going to start reading in verse 10, and I'm going to read through verse um, 17. Because I want you to hear the context. And what I want you to see is this. There is great grief. Yes, there is great grief, but it is grief surrounded by hope and restoration. And that informs how we read Matthew. Verse 10, Jeremiah 31. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And then the passage of grief. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But then verse 16 gives an answer to that. It gives an answer to the weeping. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And so the point of this is that, yes, there is great grief, but it is grief surrounded by hope and restoration. Because in Jeremiah, it's being said metaphorically to, to Rachel, who was dead, saying, listen, they're coming back. Yes, they were taken to exile, but they're coming back. God will bring them back. They're not gone forever. There is still hope. And so we come back to Matthew chapter 2, and we think, okay, wow, this is, this is a tragedy. All these male children slaughtered. For, for no good reason. Their lives horribly taken away. And the Savior himself had to leave. He's gone. He left Israel. But the whole point is, as we saw, he's going to come back. He's going to come back. He's going to finish what God sent him to do. So even in the midst of great grief, there is great hope and great joy because restoration is coming. And the third point, and we'll finish with this, is that Jesus is the Messiah who will be rejected by his own people. Yes, he's the true son of God, the true Israel. He's the deliverer who's coming. But he is also the Messiah who will be rejected by his own people. And we'll see that again in verse 23 when we get to the fulfillment of prophecy. But let's kind of work our way there. So, verse 18, 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 21. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. It's not the main point, but I think it's one worth noting right here, is we see and we have seen the consistent obedience of Joseph to the Lord. Um, It is a mark of a godly man who seeks to obey whatever God tells him to do. 
Now, I'm not saying you should expect visions and dreams to, for God to speak to you, but we have a book called the Bible where God speaks from beginning to end. And one of the best things, especially men and, and dads in particular, that you can do for your family and your children is to obey what God tells you to do. If you want to be a dad one day, pray, God, help me obey you for the sake of my family. Joseph obeyed and his family was blessed through his obedience. That's not a promise, by the way, that everything will be rosy and well. But God will bless your family, dads, when you obey and you walk in obedience to the Lord. And I think for all of us, it just goes to show obedience is a big deal to God. We're not saved by our obedience. Please don't hear that. You don't earn salvation because you obey. But if you have been saved, obedience naturally flows. It should be our desire to obey this God who has pulled us out of our sin and from under his wrath and into a right relationship with him. Why wouldn't we obey such a God who's done all these things? But Joseph's consistent obedience is worthy of note. We also see Joseph showing wisdom and caution here because verse 22, as he's coming back, He heard what? That Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, and he was afraid to go there. You might say, well, doesn't it seem though like if he's showing such faith, why would he fear? Well, again, he's using wisdom. He knows who Archelaus is. Archelaus was actually worse than his father Herod, if we can picture that, if we can imagine that. Herod was vile. Archelaus was worse. So bad, in fact, that he was actually removed from office and sent into exile by Caesar Augustus. He was so horrible to the people of Israel that Caesar feared a rebellion might actually start because of how bad he was, and so he got rid of him. Archelaus was not a good guy. He was terrible to the Jewish people. At least one story said on Passover, he killed over 3,000 Jews just because he could. So he was not a good guy. And Joseph was right to say, probably don't want to get close to where he is. And so where does Joseph go then? Verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth in the district of Galilee. Interestingly, Luke tells us Nazareth is actually where Joseph was from. It was his hometown. Um, I think Mary's too, if we remember rightly. But moving to Nazareth, again, we get this final thing where it says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, there's not a specific passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene. But Matthew doesn't say a specific passage tells us that either. He says, what was spoken by the prophets, plural. And that's significant. What he's doing is picking up on a prophetic theme, something multiple prophets talked about, um, and they were pointing to for us to understand um, when Jesus came. So to be called a Nazarene basically means, because Nazareth was a very small town, backwoods, backwater. It's basically like saying you're from Podunk Hickville. That's the, the redneck capital, Nazareth. It didn't have a good reputation. We dismiss and deride places like that. I don't, I kind of come from one in Baxley. It's a little bit bigger than than Nazareth. Um, But you know what we're talking about. I mean, you remember a number of years ago, was it Jeff Foxworthy? You might be a redneck if 
You know, it was one of them like if, if your aunt has been on TV describing what the tornado sounded like, you might be a redneck. If Jeff Foxworthy lived back in Jesus' day, he would have had a TV show said, you might be a Nazarene if. So to, to be called a Nazarene was not a good thing. It was, it was a term of derision, a term of dismissal. Um, you know, you're from Nazareth? Oh, you know, don't get near them. Um, they're going to ruin the party. They're going to mess everything up. Don't let them start talking. Get out as quick as you can. Um, and we see this. this. Maybe you remember this. John chapter 1. Flip over real quick to this. This is very interesting. John chapter 1, verse 46. This is when Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. And Philip comes and it's like, look, we found the guy Moses wrote about. Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it, it just wasn't a place you wanted to be from if you wanted to make a name for yourself or do anything significant in the world. And yet, it is the fulfillment of prophecy. Because being from Nazareth, Jesus is going to be sneered at just because of where he's from. We read at the beginning Psalm 22. We read Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. Another one is Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. He was cut off, it says. So all that God is doing is to prepare Jesus to be our Savior, to die on a cross for our sins. But it has to start somewhere. And it starts in the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel. Again, we see a genealogy. This despised son, this despised child from a despised city, Nazareth. He's actually the son of David. This podunk Nazarene is going to rule the nations. He's going to bring God's blessing to the world. He's going to save people from their sins. He's going to provide a way for sinners to come back to God. God consistently frustrates the perspectives of the world in order to accomplish His purposes. And let's be thankful that He does. We see the miracle of Jesus surviving. Let's marvel even more that everything He went through was according to God's plan. But even more than that, it points us to the fact that He is the Savior that we all need. And so as we pray, gaze into your own heart. Where are you in relation to this Savior, to this child who will grow up to die on a cross? Do you know him? Have you worshiped at his feet like the wise men did? Or are you still hostile to him like Herod? You might say, I wouldn't wish him dead. But if you haven't trusted him, you are hostile to him. Because there's only two responses. You will either reject him or you will worship him. So as we pray, consider your own heart and where you are. And know that you have an opportunity today to call out to him to save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture. Lord, we've looked at a lot, a lot considered a lot. Um, but God, we are thankful that you keep your promises, that you've provided the Savior that we need, that you protected him in his most vulnerable moments. And because of that, Lord, we know that we have hope. We have hope that our sins can be forgiven. We have hope that we can be right with you. 
And God, we know that you can provide all that we need for life in this world. Help us trust you for that, but even more, help us to trust that you have provided true salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to marvel at him more, to love him more, to trust him more, to rest in him alone as all our hope for salvation and eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.